Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, episode 41, Judas. Now is the moment Hannibal finally moves from Canai. Canai is in Apulia, which, if you think back to episode 3, you will remember is the bit above the heel of Italy. Be aware, though, we are dealing with classical terminology here. For our purposes, Brutium is the toe of Italy. Calabria is the heel. Apulia is just above the heel on the Adriatic coast. At some point, I'm not really sure when, but I think in late antiquity, the labels change. The region known as Brutium becomes Calabria, while the old Calabria is absorbed into Apulia, which doubles in size. This creates the medieval and modern labels, but I will be using the classical labels. I just want to make you aware of such changes. If you were unaware of this, you may be highly confused. I certainly was before I found out the label change. When studying the Norman duchies of southern Italy, I was very shocked to find Calabria in a different place on the map. But I do digress. Hannibal moved out of Cannae, and out of Apulia. He travelled westwards into Samnium, a region traditionally hostile to Rome. Just think of the Samnite Wars fought throughout the 4th century. They travelled to the town of Compsa, which was handed over to Hannibal by a certain Statius Trebius. Hannibal ordered his brother Margo to take over the towns of Samnium as they defected. Should they not defect, they should be dealt with by the boys. Hannibal himself would continue marching, making his way into Campania. Once there, he homed in on his target, Naples. Ah, old Napoli, where they say that when the moon hits your eye, like a big pizza pie, that's amore. The land had a lot of hidden tracks and blind corners, so he sent some of his horsemen out to go round up some cattle. This had the desired effect of getting the city to send out a few horsemen to go get them back. Hannibal's Numidians were more than a match for these few members of the Neapolitan aristocracy, and captured most of them. A few managed to escape as they were very close to the sea, and there were some fishing boats nearby. While the Numidians would have certainly liked to have captured all the horsemen, they did kill Hegius, the commander of the Neapolitan cavalry. Hannibal decided against attacking Naples once he saw the size of the city's walls, and instead he moved to Capua. While Rome's confederation in Italy may have not exactly resembled a state as we would think of it today, we can probably think of Rome as the capital of Italy. So, if you want to think of Rome in this way, consider Capua Italy's second city. It was a very great, powerful and a wealthy city. Livy calls it a very corrupt city, but I would be hesitant to agree with this. Romans were traditionally not fond of public displays of wealth and luxury. Capua is associated with such traits, and remember the circumstances 
of the authorship of this work, the Augustan morality legislation. It is in Livy's interests to make Capua look bad. Such decadence could be pointed to as one of the reasons for Capua's eventual fall, and backing the wrong choice. While this is somewhat being played up, what Livy really flags up is the unlimited freedom of the common people causing corruption. I'd very much like to know Livy's reasoning for this, but likewise, I'm sure it should be placed in the context of power being concentrated in Augustus's hands, along with that of the Senate, with the people becoming almost irrelevant in Roman politics. But to uh, move away from Livy's subtle use of Augustan propaganda, we shall turn Pacuius Calavius. Calavius was a popular politician, dominating Capua's Senate on the people's behalf. Calavius knew that amongst the people, the Senate was unpopular, so he saw the opportunity to betray the city to Hannibal, should he approach, as a chance for political revolution. He didn't want to murder the senators, feeling that without this council, the city would politically disintegrate. Note how Livy considers this Calavius's redeeming feature. Instead, Calavius summoned the Senate. He said that unless it was necessary, he would not support secession from Rome. He was intermarried with the Roman aristocracy. What better position could he gain with the Carthaginians? Instead, they should focus on the real enemy, the people. They would not be content to switch allegiance to Hannibal. They would want to kill all the senators and hand over the city on a silver platter. He then said he would prevent this from happening if they put aside their past differences, such as his support of the people against them, and gave him total power. Terrified, the senators gave in. He then told the senators to hide in the senate house, who he would surround with guards, to protect them. He would then go out into the people and propose the idea that they kill all the senators and hand the city over to the Carthaginians. By supporting this plan, he would find a better way to save them than if he tried in vain to oppose it. Regardless of who is the good guy and who is the bad guy in this situation, the sheer stupidity and gullibility of the senators is astounding. They place themselves completely into the hands of Calavius. Calavius went out to the people, proposed the plan, and suggested that they try all of the senators. If they be considered unworthy, they should elect a good man as his replacement. But after voting the first man to death, the people couldn't think of a single suitable replacement, and the senators were allowed to live. The senators were completely under the thumb of Calavius, thinking they owed him their lives. The senators started acting nicer to the commoners, saying, Good morning, old chap in the streets, or whatever the local variation was. There were invitations to dinners, legal assistance, that sort of thing. The people and the nobility became more fused 
in mentality. As a whole, the city began to turn against Rome. Following the defeat of Cannae, they began doubting, and would have seceded much sooner had they not had such close ties with Rome. They had marriage alliances, as well as 300 horsemen garrisoning Sicily. They sent a message to Varro, who had not yet set out for Canusium at this point, offering their condolences. In normal circumstances, this would be treated as a very nice gesture, but the companions were mistrusted, and the action received contempt. The companions offered to give Rome what they needed. Varro laughed this off. To be lacking something, they needed to actually have something. At Canai, they lost everything. They needed everything. They didn't need aid. They needed the companions to fight the war on their behalf. He said they could raise 35,000 or so. This would help prevent Hannibal from feeling his victory in the region and feeling the Roman defeat. The companion delegates returned, feeling aggrieved, and began to think over a plan. They decided the time had come for them to take from Rome what they considered Rome to have taken from them. It was time to take the position from Latium as the most powerful region in Italy. If they sided with Hannibal, Italy could be theirs. This was reported to the Capuan Senate, now more in line with popular opinion than with Rome. And now the majority of senators began to think that this was the right thing to do. The older senators forced the body to wait a few days to make sure, but it was agreed. They would send envoys to Hannibal. I'll quote what happened next from Livy, Book 23, Chapter 7. The envoys went to Hannibal, and the following terms were agreed between them. First, that no Carthaginian military or civil officer should have jurisdiction over any companion citizen. Secondly, that no companion should serve in the army or in any other capacity against his will. Thirdly, that Capua should have her own laws and her own magistrates. Fourthly, that Hannibal should hand over to the companions 300 selected Roman prisoners, for whom they would exchange the companion cavalrymen serving in Sicily. So much for the terms. But the companions, not content with a formal pact only, followed it by an abominable crime. The mob suddenly arrested the Roman officials known as prefects of the Allies and other Roman citizens, some engaged in war service, others busy about their personal affairs, and had them shut up in the baths as if for safe custody. They were all choked by the heat and steam and died a horrible death. These were very good terms for the companions and would have been good evidence for Hannibal making himself seem like a good guy with the Italians. As for the killing of Romans, that's rather bad, assuming, of course, that this really happened. Many a crueler thing has happened, but this sounds like a bit of over-exaggeration to me. I'm not saying that Livy made it up, 
or that this didn't happen. I'm just saying don't believe everything you read. Or in uh, your case, here. One companion, who was very hostile to the actions being taken, was Decius Magius. Hannibal became aware of this man's hostility, and summoned him. Magius refused, citing in the agreement between Hannibal and Campania that he could not force a companion citizen to do something against his will. Capua was subject to its own laws. Hannibal was furious, and wanted Magius to be dragged before him in chains, but very quickly realised that this was a terrible idea, and would only provoke a riot against him. He sent word to Capua that he was going there to visit. The Capuans were ecstatic. They were cheering in the streets to meet the famous general. Magius, being against the whole thing, decided to take a walk in the streets with his son and some dependents. Being at home would seem a bit suspicious. Hannibal met with the senators and asked them to go to the senate house and talk serious matters, not being a man for frivolity. As Mr Jarvis Laurie might say, he was a man of business. The senators pleaded not to make such a special day a business day, and Hannibal relented, not wanting to start off his relationship with the refusal. Hannibal stayed with two brothers, Senthenius and Pacuvius. These were men of the family Ninii Calares, so don't confuse this Pacuvius with our Pacuvius Calarius. Though Calarius did visit this house along with his son, who happened to be a follower of Margius. Hannibal was greatly entertained by this boy's support for Rome against the opinions of the city and of his father, and he invited them both to a banquet. Quite an honour. Other than the hosts, only one other guest was a companion. At the banquet, Calawius's son was the only person who refused to drink, citing indisposition. Considering the boy's support for Rome, this was excused by the father as some mental agitation. Before sunset, Calarius left the banquet hall and his son followed him, and told him that he had a plan to earn back Rome's trust. Calarius asked what the plan was, and his son revealed that he had a sword hiding under his toga. He would kill Hannibal tonight, and warned his father to leave. Calarius was terrified and begged his son not to do this. He had just secured Hannibal's favour for his son. They shouldn't betray this trust. Just think of all the guards, all the witnesses. Was he really going to get away with this? The son relented in tears and threw away his sword before returning to the banquet, so not to arouse suspicion. The next day, Hannibal finally got down to some real business. He thanked the people of Campania for their alliance with him over Rome, declaring Capua to soon be the capital of Italy. However, Decius Magius did not deserve to be called a companion. He demanded him to be brought to him so that his fate could be discussed by the Senate. 
in his presence. The Senate agreed. Margius protested that this was not part of the treaty. He protested all the way through the city, as he was brought to the Senate. He was second to none in this city, and yet he was about to be killed for expressing his opinions. Was this the freedom they desired? Hannibal decided to send Margius to Carthage. If there were retaliation against Margius, it could provoke a disturbance, or the Senate might ask for no harm to be done. This would place him in a dilly of a pickle, either antagonise his new allies almost immediately, or appear weak and keep in Capua the most likely source of rebellion. As so it happened, Margius never wound up in Carthage, but his ship was blown off course and landed in Cyrene, in modern eastern Libya, on the edge of the Gulf of Sidra. At that time, Cyrene was under the control of Ptolemaic Egypt, whose current ruler was Ptolemy IV Philippato. Margius was brought to Ptolemy under guard, and Margius told him how Hannibal had bound him against the terms of the treaty. Ptolemy decided that Margius was in the right and freed him, giving him the option to return to Capua or Rome. Margius said that Capua would be unsafe for him, while, as the war was still on, if he went to Rome, he would be treated as a deserter, rather than a guest. So, he would instead stay with Ptolemy in Egypt, much preferring to live in the realm of a king who had given him freedom, and he would protect it. Incidentally, this isn't the first time we've mentioned Ptolemy IV on the podcast. We brought him up way back in episode 7, when I was describing naval warfare, and the forcey oarsman per column warship called the Tesseraconateres. This was the ship that needed 4,000 oarsmen, stood at 128 metres long, went up to 24 metres above sea level, and could carry almost 300 marines. Ptolemy was quite a powerful pharaoh. And on that note, we'll call it a day for this week. If you've enjoyed listening to the show, please check us out at all the usual places online. You know where to find me. I'll see you next week when we take a looky at the reaction to Kanai in a place we haven't been for a while. Carthage itself. <laughs>